0: And I had my own questions, right? Like, am I a bad person, right? Does God hate me? What did I do wrong in life to deserve this? How can I be a husband and a father? So I still have a six month old at home. And finally, Josh convinced me to call my parents and my wife. I called my wife and the only thing I said to her was, hey, what's up, fine, I'll be bye.
1: This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a business leader whose life was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI, or Maine Technology Institute, Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank.
0: Investment products are not FDIC-insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value.
1: United States Army Staff Sergeant Travis Mills was on his third tour of duty in Afghanistan when he was critically injured by a roadside IED. He is one of only five quadruple amputees from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to survive his injuries. As he worked towards recovery, Travis and his wife Kelsey started the Travis Mills Foundation to send care packages overseas. Today I'll be talking with Travis about his day that changed everything and his recovery, what the foundation turned into and how he lives by his motto, never give up, never quit. Thanks Travis for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where, where did you grow up?
0: Yeah, so a lot of people think I grew up in Maine, which I appreciate, um, but I actually grew up in Michigan. My, you know, small town upbringing is just like a normal Maine small town. You know, we had a, my family was my mom, dad, sister, uh, myself, my little brother, and pretty, pretty normal upbringing. You know, play a lot of sports the whole time, football, basketball, baseball. And uh, and yes, I'm, I'm from the, the great state of Michigan, but glad to be from Maine and hope people don't you know hate me for not being born here.
1: I think you're a Mainer. Was your family a military family?
0: You know, my dad was in the military for four years uh, as a mechanic and served in Germany and things like that. He, he came you know of age to go in the military after Vietnam had dwindled down. and it was never like going to the military or things like that. He didn't really talk too much about it. He said it was fun doesn't regret it but it wasn't like a a big push my grandpa was in the navy and so i guess yeah a lot of my family had served
1: so it was a service history but maybe not an expectation
0: yeah yeah it wasn't like this hard line like you have to do it uh yeah things like that but i was i was grateful that i had the chance to serve and and i really did enjoy it and then when i got tired of it i found my way into early retirement
1: so what prompted you to seek out the military if it wasn't an expectation from your family
0: You know, finished up high school, I graduated and I went to college, like everybody's told go to college, you got to go to college. And I did. And it turns out I didn't like college. Um, I only went to school to play sports, football season was ending, baseball season was starting up at the college, they wanted me to play baseball there as well. But I was throwing a lot of money away at something I wasn't really passionate about. And I thought, there's gotta be something different, you know, and I was always interested in the military. And I talked to a recruiter, um, actually at the college. And got talking with them. And I was like, you know, I'll probably finish college some other time, but I'm just not into it. And they said, well, come talk to us. And I did. And I actually talked to the Air Force, the Army, and the Marines. And I narrowed it down to the Army. And I took off for Army basic training in March of 2006 because I just I just didn't want, I didn't want to go to school anymore.
1: When you enlisted, how did that feel? Were you excited? Were you scared? How did your family react when you told them that you'd enlisted?
0: I mean, my mom was worried worried really because it was like you know during war like we knew it was wartime and you saw the updates and they understood like I was probably going to really enjoy it right the camaraderie the brotherhood the the excitement of something new and the chance to go out on my own and do my own thing so of course they were worried not too pleased because of the whole war stuff going on but they knew I was just going to kind of do what I want to do you know by the time I got through base training they were they're were happy for me and they knew I was going to try to make a career out of it I did plan on doing 20 you know, I, I, or more, I did enjoy it. And when
1: did you enlist?
0: Uh, I enlisted in 2006.
1: So we were deep into the Iraq and Afghanistan wars at that point.
0: Yep. I went in uh, March of 06, uh, went to basic training and then, you know, did all my, my stuff for airborne, you know, school and learned how to jump on airplanes, made it to the 82nd airborne division. And then I deployed January of 07. So, um, you know, not in the military over a, a year even. And I was, back that I was over to Afghanistan. Yeah, so my first deployment was actually really fun. Um, I mean, they're all kind of fun in their own way. But my first deployment at 19 years old, I was over there in Afghanistan and they pulled me for a colonel's personal security detachment. And it was it was awesome, right? I was a private, I had $6 million of equipment assigned to me. They were like, you're an infantry guy, so you're da-da-da, you know? And I'm like, I have four more weeks of basic training. So like I was a truck commander, I had my own Humvee I was in charge of, and there was a sergeant driver and an E4 gunner, and I was, you know, PV2 private, you know, and they were like, Yep, yeah, yeah, you're infantry. And I'm like, all right, cool. So you fake it till you make it. And uh, I got to go over there with some really wonderful and amazing guys, and um, they were all made up of different uh, MOSs or jobs. So there was cooks, there was um, mechanics, you know, there was... Uh, 13 deltas, which is the computer system for artillery. And I wasn't doing what my actual job was um, with it, with a line unit, they call it. But I was still going out of missions every day. But when you have the protection of the colonel who runs the whole entire place that you're at, it's a pretty chill job. So I have to wait three hours a day. I went on patrols, you know, for about six or seven. You go out, do your thing, come back. And life was pretty good, (laughs) to be honest with you. And I think that helped shape me in my military career because I didn't go to the unit where, you know, you get yelled at and, and yelled at and things like that as a private. Like I was just like treated like, a, you know, like an adult. And I, you know, really loved that aspect of uh, the leaders that I had. And I'm still friends with those leaders today. You know, we did a 15 month deployment. While I was on that deployment, my medic that I became really close with, he went home to watch his first start be born in September of 07. And when he was at home, I got a MySpace friend request. And it just so happened to be a young lady from Texas who actually was in college and 18 years old and was his little sister that he didn't tell us about for good reason. And she thought I was cute, but at the time I was six foot three, 275, lifting weights all the time. And uh, we started talking and I was coming home in December for um, my r and I had 18 days off. So I was over there for 11 and a half months until I got my R&R and I went home for Christmas time. So I did the first four days in, my, you know, town, my hometown of Michigan. I flew into Dallas to pick up a girl who I, who I had never met, and we went to Cozumel, Mexico for a week. So our first date ever with his little sister Kelsey was to Cozumel for a week, then back to Michigan for a week, then back overseas I went, and then I came back three months later and we got married.
1: Did your colleague know that you were taking his little sister to Cozumel, Mexico?
0: He wasn't happy. Neither was my uh, now in-laws. They weren't happy about it either. <laughs> but she was 18 in college and an adult and Josh did say to his parents, like, he's actually a really good guy. Like he's not going to, you know, he's not like some weirdo going to do something bad or anything Um, like those horror stories. So they gave their, not blessing, but they were like, okay, this is going to happen. And uh, you know, so Kelsey and I went to Mexico and uh, had a good trip, which that could one of two ways. Right. And then (laughs) uh, back to Michigan. And then like I said, overseas, I went for another three months, came back and we had a big wedding in June bought uh, an apartment actually, got buy. we, we rented an apartment, and we were very young, uh, 19 and 21, we were married, and we got a dog, <laughs> still got the dog today, named Buddy, and just, you know, hey, just things worked out.
1: And so that was your first tour, did you re-enlist during this time?
0: Uh, no, my second appointment I did actually, I over okay. again in 2009 to 2010 for a year, and it was time for me to either re-enlist or get out, and I wanted to re-enlist, and I was looking at all these different jobs Um, because there's amazing jobs in the army and uh, they were all open up for me to do whatever I wanted and I was a sergeant at the time and I said you know what I just love the infantry as dumb as that might sound like the rush the adrenaline all that like that's what I want and um, I re-enlisted over there and after I got back four months after that you know we found out we're gonna have a baby and our daughter Chloe was born in September of 11 you know she's gonna be 10 this month very exciting and very exciting Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I had orders taking me actually to Fort Hood, um, Texas, but I didn't want to go because I had guys that were deploying and my unit was going back overseas. And I thought, well, if they're going, I got to go. And my wife understood that, you know, it wasn't really as much as the Army was like, hey, you've had over two years combat experience in the short time. Like, you probably shouldn't go on this. Like, we'll give you a break. Just go build this unit up. They wanted staff sergeants with combat experience to go build this new unit. And I said, yeah, um, no, I have to I have to go overseas. Uh, my guys are going so I got to go and you know I had my sergeant major cancel my orders and he agreed like he, well he didn't I mean he did ask me a couple times are you sure like you sure? I'm like, oh, I just bought a house I can use the tax-free money but more importantly my guys are going I gotta go
1: at this point you've done two deployments you've re-enlisted and you're looking at your third deployment you've bought a house and are starting a family are you thinking that the military is going to be your career
0: yeah I actually had big plans of um coming back from that deployment, neither going to be a recruiter. Uh more more realistically, I probably would have been pegged for jump master school. I would have been a because I was a jump master. So I did the training so I could check people's equipment, their their parachutes, and then I could, you know, have them properly exit the aircraft, which is it's just like three week school. Um it, I mean it's pretty awesome to be a jump master. You know, you get like a special leg or ankle, oh it's a shin like uh strap that goes around your leg with a knife for cutaways. And it's kind of like everybody, you know, they not everybody does it, but everybody in the 82nd is encouraged to do it and it helps with promotion and stuff. But I, I figured I'd be going to that school for three years to um, to be a trainer. So get people to come through the school. And um, I planned on finishing my degree. I had a year and a half left. When, my, when I re-enlisted on my second deployment, uh, they have a um, an incentive called college option. So you can do a semester at school. So I did that semester school. I had the semester room before and then my military training that I had. So, and I did college throughout you know, here and there. So I had about a year and a half left to finish my degree. And I thought I would just go, you know, to uh, either be a recruiter or jump master school and then finish my college and then become an officer and I retire out, you know, as a major probably. But, you know, things don't happen the way that you plan them, I guess.
1: That is very true. So in April of 2012, you're a staff sergeant with the 82nd Airborne on your third tour, and your life was changed forever. Can you tell us about that day?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we uh, we went over, you know, we, were, we knew we were leaving in February, and I went to work one morning. And my first sergeant said, hey, Sergeant Mills, uh, I don't have any staff sergeants on this this stick going. Like, I need, I need you to leave a day earlier than you planned. And I looked at him and said, well... Uh, I gotta go home. He goes, yeah, yeah, no, you, you need to leave. So I went into work at nine and uh, I was back home you know, by 9.30 and told him, that, you know, Kelsey, hey, I gotta leave tonight, I'm sorry. So I went overseas in February of uh, 12. And then a month and a half in on April 10th, we got a phone call from a village elder, which is pretty typical, saying he needs our help. And we went out on patrol and we always swept the ground with a mine circle, which looks like a metal detector, but it's um, made to detect any soil uh, disruptions. You know, in the ground, and the guy swept the ground uh, once. Then he came back down, swept it again, and I set my backpack down. And um, when my backpack hit the ground, it was about 120 pounds, and it it went off, and the bomb went off. And you know, it it wasn't uncommon to like be in firefights over there, like on that deployment, where we like a lot of firefights, a lot of engagements with the enemy. But the bombs were the worst because they would hide them where you would expect to like take cover. So they would wait for us to walk in a field and shoot at us knowing they planted bombs in the mound of dirt that you would try to get behind to cover yourself. But at this particular day, there wasn't anybody shooting at us. I just sent my backpack down and a bomb went off. And when the bomb went off, it took my right arm off and right leg off automatically. They actually never found those pieces of me. Um, I got thrown to the left side of my face and when I rolled over and I saw the aftermath. My left leg was snapped at the bone, a couple of muscle and tendon holding it on. And my ankle bone, if you can imagine, the outside ankle bone of your foot was touching my left thigh. So it was pretty pretty bad, right? Muscle and tendon still had enough. it, was, it was basically gone. And I, I uh, had my left hand still, my thumb and index middle, and my thumb and index middle finger were still working, but the other two were mangled up. So I rolled over and I saw the aftermath, and I was like, no, "That's not good." And in my head, the only thing I saw was a movie Saving Private Ryan. People think that's kind of silly, but it, but it, truthfully, it was what I saw because in the movie Saving Private Ryan, the medic gets shot in the stomach, and then he starts to figure it out he's going to die. And he freaks out and he like begs for his life and he begs to, for either to see his mom. and He doesn't want to die. And ultimately he dies. And I've always told myself from that scene, no matter what happens, I'll never, I'll never be that guy. Like if I got to face death, I'll face the head on. And it's nothing against people that freak out or have that, that, but for me as a leader in the military, I was the youngest E6 in my, my platoon. I was the least amount of time with my E6 rank, but I was a senior that got put in the senior weapon squad um, position because of my leadership and you know it wasn't like i was i always tell people i was really good at you know kissing up to my my uh, my, uh leadership but really i was just really good at my job and you know no matter what the mission was i was going to get it done with my guys and we were going to go full force at it so when i got injured i kept seeing that movie scene and i, and I told myself don't be that guy so as a medic runs up to me my platoon sergeant runs up to me i telling the medic hey don't worry about it you're not going to save me like i told doc bates and i said just go save my guys and they ignored me and they put turn gets on all four of my limbs, him and my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Hambright. And that stopped my bleeding from bleeding out. And then they uh were working on me and I had two other guys you know for the medic that got hit with my, you know, the shrapnel. So I went ahead and I radioed my lieutenant said, hey six, this is four. I got guys injured. I need your medic with mine. And you know he sent over his medic, Doc Voice, to come help out. And Doc Voice worked on the other two guys and they worked on me. Then they got me on a stretcher, took me to the helicopter and then on the helicopter, um, one of my guys was yelling out in pain. He had every right. Like it was very painful what he was going through. And I uh, had this protective goop they put in my eyes, to, you know, from the rotor wash, not to get too um, scratched up from all the rocks and the dirt when it gets blown around. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like ear goggles. But I, you know, looked over at my guy and I yelled and I was telling him, you're going to be okay. And I gave him a wink. And then the flight medic, I was yelling at him about the third time I yelled at him. I might have said some choice words. I was like, hey, hey, I said, hey, mother, you know, and I said, take your helmet off. And I pulled my, my left hand, I pulled it out of the strap it was in, and I swung it over my head to motion to take my, his helmet off, Then he couldn't hear me. And he took it off, and I told him, give my guys water. And I said, hey, by the way, sorry I yelled at you, but give my guys water until they're going to be okay. And that flight medic and his partner wrote my wife a letter, and me, but my wife a letter, and said, I can't believe this guy in his state was telling me to take care of his guys. And they said, it will change your life forever. And actually, in my book that I wrote, uh, Tough As They Come, we actually published that letter they sent us. So it was pretty cool. But anyway, I made it to Walter Reed. I'm sorry, I made it to Kandahar. As it rushed me into surgery, I kept trying to sit up. And the nurse was like, Sergeant Mills like finally yelled at me after I was telling her, quit touching me. Like, quit touching me, I'm fine. Like, leave me alone. And I remember vividly saying, I just got my legs back underneath me. And she's like, Sergeant Mills, I don't know how you're still awake right now, but you actually need to go to sleep. And she knocked me out. And then uh, nine doctors and seven nurses worked on me for 14 hours straight. And two nurses, just like you see in the movies and the TV shows, had an airbag they pumped in and out of my lungs for nine hours. And they had to actually give me so much blood that my blood type changed. And I ran out of blood in the blood bank. So they were given directly from their veins and from people outside the hospital that were A-positive. Pretty, pretty, you know, sad and crazy um, situation. But they um, worked on me and I became a triple amputee that day. Both legs and one, my right arm were gone. While this all happened, my brother-in-law got a phone call. That I had been injured. He was in a different part of Afghanistan, so he flew in because they thought I was going to die, and when you deploy, you fill out a thing called a blue book in the army, and you basically just plan your funeral. It's real, real morbid. I want to be buried here, you know, with these honors, civilian or military, and I want to have, you know, I want to wear this, you know, like a suit over my military clothes. I want to have right. this music played, you know, this in my coffin, and I mean, real sad, um, yeah. honestly, but the last thing is who escorts your body back home, and for me, it was going to be Josh. And for Josh, if anything happened to him, it'd be me. So he flew in, saw the aftermath, um, after the phone call, I mean, and flew in. And then they flew us to Bagram on April 12th. And they took me in for a washout. And they had to cut my left hand off the rest of the way. And then they flew me from Bagram to Lundstuhl, uh, excuse me, Lundstuhl, Germany. And they took me in and the, 20, the 14th of April. They woke me up for the very first time. And at this point, I woke up and I saw what happened. And my brother-in-law was the only one in the room when I actually came to. And I immediately said, you know, my soldiers, how are my soldiers? And he told me about Ryan and Brandon. And then I said, am I paralyzed? And he said, no. And I said, Josh, you don't got to lie to me. Like, I can't feel my fingers and toes, man. Tell me the truth. And he's like, no, you know, you're not paralyzed. You don't have any anymore. You don't want to, like, lie to me. Or And then uh, I ignored everybody. I was like, oh. And I just ignored everybody for three hours as they asked questions of doctors and nurses, Josh. And I had my own questions, right? Like, am I a bad person? Right? Does God hate me? What did I do wrong in life to deserve this? How can I be a husband and a father? Because I still have a six-month-old at home. And finally, Josh convinced me to call my parents and my wife. And I called my wife, and the only thing I said to her was, "Hey, what's up? I'm fine. Love you. Bye." Um, in my head, I'm just going to be a burden. In my head, you know, I'm like Lieutenant Dan from Gump. Like, why? Why didn't I just die? Not suicidal, no, but yeah.
1: So how long from the explosion was it before you were in Germany and making those phone calls?
0: Four days. It was actually my, uh, my mom and dad, when I talked to them, uh, when I let them go, my mom yelled, Hey, happy birthday. Cause it was my 25th birthday on April 14th. And that woke me up and then, uh, I made it back to the States on the 17th. I was, uh, you know, I don't know, like, oh, two feet shorter, maybe three feet (laughs) shorter and uh, 110 pounds lighter. So I made it wow. back and Kelsey came out to see me. And in my head, I'm thinking, she should just take what we have and just go, you know? But she came out, they, they had to cut my leg up higher. So I didn't get to really talk to her that day. And the next day I talked to her and, and I told her like, take the house, the cars, uh, you know, any money saved up, it's all yours. And financially, whatever you and Chloe need, I'll, I'll take care of, but you can, you can go. And she's like, that's not how this works. We'll get through this. And, uh, you know, that meant a lot because I'm sitting here going like, I'm just gonna be a burden. And I think that was a real tipping point After she said she's not going to go, my daughter came to visit me uh, in the next couple of days. And I realized, like, I was going to live. Unfortunately, as bad as my situation is, uh, I have to get better. Yeah. I got people that depend on me. Just say I'm depending on them. So I went headstrong into my recoveries as fast and as hard as I could.
1: Thank you, Travis, for telling us what that day was like for you. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear from Travis about what that recovery entailed and how he began to work through his long journey of rehab and physical therapy and how the idea for the Travis Mills Foundation came about.
0: As the CEO or owner of a small or mid-sized business in Maine, you've got the weight of the world on you. But what if you didn't have to go at it alone? What if you could journey with an elite team of peers who've got your back and an experienced guide who knows the lay of the land? With that level of support, how far could you go? For more than 60 years, Vistage, the world's leading executive coaching and peer advisory organization, has been helping leaders reach new heights. Learn more at Vistage.com. That's V I S T A G E.com. And I can remember going into the bedroom and seeing a picture of me, in my full gear, right? Orange baseball cap. It was taken the day before I got blown up. Rifle, like that was Staff Sergeant Mills, Senior Combat Soldiers. And I broke down. I was like, who am I now? Like, who am I going to be? And I had no idea who I was going to be.
1: So we're back with Travis, and he was explaining his journey through multiple hospitals overseas and returning to Walter Reed, Um, and getting in touch with his family on his return. So, Travis, you said it was about four days before you were able to talk with your wife. How long was it until you got to see your family?
0: Yeah, so um, four days after my injury, they let me wake up from my medical sedation. And then three days after that, so one week, I was back in the States, and uh, my wife ran up to me and saw me, but they had to take me to emergency surgery. And, uh, you know, they gave her a clipboard and said, Mrs. Mills, his right leg ripped open, his sutures have split. And if he uh, doesn't get his taking care of a bleed out and die but we can't do it without your permission you know and you got to sign off and she's 23 right and I'm 25 and she's like Ugh, what do I do No. uh so she actually she had to sign I did like she didn't know what to do I was like just sign it it's fine just sign it and then she signs it and then the next day on the 18th, she comes and talks to me you know and we actually get to have a real conversation and you know I was sore but I was able to to communicate and I was like you don't got to do this like this isn't the life I would choose for you or for Chloe and um, you should take what we have and just, you, you can go and no hard feelings. And I now will financially support whatever you need, you know, and obviously she had to weigh that option, but the handicapped parking was just like, such <laughs> a great- <laughs> but uh, no, so she was offended actually, mad. I said that. And then she's like, we'll get through this together. I saw my wife in you know, the first week, basically of getting injured. Um, and I started getting better and better. And I got to go down to the military advanced training center, start working out. Yeah, I started to set some goals, you know, and within five weeks of my injury, I actually got to put a prosthetic hand on. So I got like this, this sweet arm and I learned these cool tricks with it, you know, and uh, it doesn't even hurt. First time my arm fell off, so painful. Now it's like nightly, but um, I learned how to use my hand and open and close and rotate. And It's funny because I can wear my arm like 20 hours if I need to, 30, you know, whatever. Um, but when you start, your skin's not used to it. So they said you can only wear it for an hour at a time, but I was able to work out with it. And they were supposed to keep it for three days, but I worked so hard at learning the, the muscle flexes and getting it all done. Right. Like you can take it home, you can eat dinner with it tonight. You can't over, overdo it because the skin breakdown. So like I, I went home and I got to feed myself for the first time. You know, and that's a big thing. Like I had, people had to feed me, you know, had to help me use the restroom, had to help put clothes on me. And I was like, nah, we need to get, we need to get going. We don't got time for this. So five weeks in, I like got my hand and I was like, all right, cool. Never again, no one's helped me ever again. And. And I'm very proud of that, you know, like, and very thankful at the same time uh, that I'm proud that I was able to do that. Thankful people did help me and grateful that there's prosthetics out there that I don't have to live like I was.
1: And you're going through rehab during all this time doing core strengthening and figuring out at what point you're going to get prosthetic
0: legs. Everything was core. So I lost 110 pounds in those seven days. And obviously some of it was my arms and legs, but other was I was so weak at one point, I couldn't sit up or roll over by myself. Like I couldn't sit up by myself even. But, you know, everything you do is core, 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 core. And then I was able to work out one hour. I was required to work out one hour of physical therapy and one hour, uh, one hour of occupational therapy a day. Like that was what I was required to be and do. But there was no limit to how much I could work out. So it turned into two hours and three hours and four hours of each a day. I turned it into a 40 hour a week job. And there were people there that would motivate, it, right? They wanted to get better. There's other people there that want to play video games and go to their one hour. And, um, I was older than most of the guys that are injured. I was only 25, but still I was one of the old guys. And I yeah. was like respected as a staff sergeant and I would bring the fun. We had Kesha Fridays. So every time I go in on Friday, I'd be like, you guys know what time it is we on, <laughs> on Pandora and just hammer some Kesha Friday. And some people didn't like that, but they realized I didn't care. And we have a good time and, you know, really try to bring the fun, um, into our recovery. Because at that point I realized how lucky am I to be here, you know, sure. um, my, my daughter's here. I learned how to walk with my daughter. Like when I was learning how to walk, she was learning. So seven weeks and four days into my recovery, I actually took my very first steps. Um, just shy of two months. i my little short legs, and you know it was a full 19 month recovery. Um, and that last six months were probably more paperwork, you know, government. But uh, but no, I was I was definitely grateful for my therapist Carrie. And then when Carrie would have to take a day off, which is very rare, she's so dedicated. I would have Kelly. Um, uh, and I stole Kelly from Walter Reed, she runs my foundation. <laughs> we will <won't> tell them, <laughs> yeah. No, they know, trust me. Know. Um, but you know, I um, not every day was like an exciting, upbeat day, but every day was a step closer to getting better, you know, and took about three months to get really proficient with the hand just because I got to use it at five weeks didn't mean I, you know, was perfect with it. Were you at Walter
1: Reed for this whole time or had you gone home at this point and where was home?
0: Well I consider Fort Bragg home. I also say Michigan's home. My wife says yep. Texas is home and my wife grew up in Maine. That's how you know when she was 11 is when she moved out to, uh, out to Texas. Yeah but for me you know Walter Reed had had was a home. It was uh they had an apartment there for us. Um at oh, Walter okay. Reed. You know my father-in-law um that's why my thing out here says Craig Buck. My father-in-law uh retired from his job early and moved in with kelsey and i because she wanted to have her dad there to help us and i didn't really know craig that well now we're very very close (laughs) like very close we travel everywhere together he's my business manager if you will and my neighbor and uh he moved in you know his wife and him made the decision that he can move in and 14 months of my recovery he was there my parents were there as well so um real team effort but uh home was still in North Carolina. I didn't sell my house till about um, a year after my injury. You know, I just like, all right, I'm not going to North Carolina. There's nothing there um, that I need to go back to, you know? Right. And, I, and I've, been, I've been very, like second Airborne put me in the Hall of Fame for the second Airborne. I was in like the second class of Hall of Fame honorees because of my work now with the foundation and things I do to give back. I mean, I fought valiantly and bravely and I have an award for that, but you know, it's, it's more based on like the stuff I do now. Um, but, um, We had like an apartment there so it was good and i'd go to work out eight hours a day and then i'd get home and uh you know get cleaned up and chloe would strap into my wheelchair and i would take chloe around you know 10 month old chloe and a year old chloe and we'd go to the cafeteria we'd get grapes or cookies or something and we'd go visit people in their rooms and they gave me the the name of the mayor of building 62 because 62 (laughs) is a warrior building where all the guys that got injured are at and i would go to the rooms the other day was hey how'd it go today you know did you make progress anything i can help you with and Unfortunately, a lot of my guys in my unit got hurt and we had myself, a quad, a triple amputee, two double leg amputees, um, one guy that still might lose his leg, but they all looked up to me. But then other people in the, the you know, the the, Met, the military advanced training center would look up to me and I'd go around and figure out if they needed help because, you know, you're not, you're in the military, but you're not type deal, right? Like my days in the military were over and I knew that, like I was just there to get better and get done. And, you know, I, like I had a different outlook. I was like, I respect the military. I love the military. I'll treat everybody with respect that they deserve and, and they earned. But at the same time, I'm not there to, you know, like there was no red tape for me. Like a lot of guys, if they had a problem as an E2 or E3, they couldn't really run up chain of command and get it fixed. And I would be that that voice for them. So I was kind of like, I became a liaison.
1: How does that feel since you had thought that the military was going to be your career and now having to realize that your military career was over? What was that like for you?
0: Oh, miserable. Um, life speaks and valleys, right? So, uh, in high school, right, I was a captain of the football, baseball, and basketball team, uh, baseball team, sophomore year, senior, and junior year, and basketball, junior, and senior year, and football, junior, and senior year, right? Like, I was everything um, in high school, big man on campus, you know. But then you go to like college and you're nobody. And then you go to the military, and you're nobody. And you build yourself up and you get injured and then you're uh, trying to figure it all out. And then, so anyway, yeah, I was here 19 months recovery. And then when I got out of the hospital, I had no idea what was meant. I can remember going and flying into Dallas, Texas, where my in-laws lived, and they converted their bedroom because they were getting a house built in Maine, but it wasn't going to be done for a while, and we were going to have to jump around, so we went there for six months, and then Michigan for six months, or maybe it was like four and four till our house was done. And I can remember going into the bedroom and seeing a picture of me, in my full full gear, right, orange baseball cap It was taken the day before I got blown up. A rifle, like that was Staff Sergeant Mills, lunar combat soldiers, and I broke down, I was like, who am I now? Like, who am I going to be? And I had no idea who I was going to be. I had started speaking a little bit, um, you know, going around nothing crazy. And then I also had started the foundation, but it was for care packages, nothing like we do now. Um, just an idea to give back do care packages. And uh, I can remember not understanding what my life is going to be like, um, you know, and having that realization of like, well, I got to do something. And, um, you know, I don't know if you know this about me, but actually I, I own four businesses either solely or, uh, with partners, um, for profit. And then I have the big Travis Mills Foundation, nonprofit as well. Mm
1: -hmm. So tell me about the various companies you're involved in.
0: So Lakeside Lodge and Marina. Uh, Lakeside's got rooms and cottages. It's got boat rentals. We have brand new Avalon pontoon boats to rent out and 180 boat slips and things like that. I'm also a part owner in CBU Benefits, which is supplemental benefits insurance company. I have some rental properties, the Travis Mills Group LLC, which is my speaking company. And then I also have a brewery I'm putting in right now called the White Duck Brew Pub, which I'm really fired up about. But I mean, and I'm not trying to be arrogant. I mean, I have business partners in that, but I just, I don't have the ability to give up myself because I think my kids are always watching and my wife and I've had a second child. His name is Dax and he's a super duper champion. He's four years old, uh, starting pre-K this year. Uh, My wife's going to be a wreck. So I
1: feel like a running theme as we've been talking has been supporting the people that were around you, whether you're laying on the ground after this explosion, making sure your guys are taken care of, or whether you're going through the halls of Walter Reed, kind of making sure your guys there are being heard. It seems like it's a running theme of your life, making sure the people around you are taken care of. Is that how the idea of the Travis Mills Foundation came about?
0: I learned how to, like we did the care packages. Kelsey and I donated $5,000 from our account. Uh, Her dad, Craig, was the vice president. Me and him and Kelsey, like we signed paperwork at a dining room table in Texas. And we started in 2013, but then I started going on all these trips at Walter Reed, and I got to go downhill mountain biking and snowboarding, and skiing and whitewater rafting and all this cool stuff. And when I looked around, I was so fortunate to be injured, as unfortunate as I was, if you can keep up with the wording of that, <laughs> because I got to take what was considered a non-medical assistant. So my wife got to go with me because I still, to this day, need help putting my legs on the right way, my arm on the right way, and she had she got the chance to go, and I got to experience all these awesome adrenaline rushes and the ability to understand that, look, I might not be able to throw a football or a baseball, but I can still do things actively with my family. And I thought, you know, it's unfair that I get this opportunity, but I understand that the military's funding is for the service member as many as possible to get the ability to learn these techniques and skills. So it was not a fault of the government. I just thought there was something more I could do. And so did Kelsey and Craig. So we went ahead and started bringing families out to Maine to show them how to do things adaptively if they were injured with physical injuries, such as mine, Uh, you know, paralyzation, one of them we do, amputation, spinal cord injuries, and anything that's physically, you know, made them disabled. And it's done so well that we opened up officially our Veterans Retreat Center in 2017. We rehabbed Elizabeth Arden's old estate. Um, It took two and a half years for like two and a half or $3 million. It's all up donor private, you know, donations and corporate donations and things like that. I'm the president. I don't take a dime, right? I'll never take a, a penny from the foundation. That's my, you know, it's not, I'm not there to to benefit except for giving back. And we've grown to be one of the top 25 service, uh, uh, veteran service organizations in the nation. And we help families, eight families per week come up and we show them, no matter what their injury is, they can do anything they want with their family. So you get a father that's missing both legs, going kayaking. You get a mom that might be missing an arm you know, that gets a chance to go out and and ride horses with their kids. And you get children that actually sit there and go, oh, my gosh, like there's other kids out there like me, other parents like my parents. And, you know, we measure success on the stories and make sure that people have a great time. And uh, we also started a program called Recalibrate because I don't consider myself a wounded warrior. Um, I was wounded, right? I had injuries, but they're all healed up. So I just recalibrated myself to be, you know, as active and just took my new normal and went with it. So, you know, we do a lot of that stuff on top of that we also have um a post-traumatic growth program called warrior path and i encourage anybody that has post-traumatic stress to visit travis mills foundation because it's a free course um it is an 18 month um commitment the first week is at our facility we will fly or drive people in you know pay for their gas for free and then they go through the course and then they continue on you know monthly and weekly like calls and updates and group settings like that and um it's one of the top of the nation we got to be able to be one of the facilities that partner with Warrior Path, which is out of Boulder Crest Foundation in Virginia. So, you know, do what we can to give back.
1: So how did Maine come into play with all this? I know you said you and your wife were building a house in Maine. How did that come to be? And then I assume that that's how the foundation ended up being in Maine?
0: Yeah, so I don't do well in the heat. My wife wanted to go to Texas, and I was like, "Geez, I don't, I don't really think I can do that." And her other option was Maine, and I said, "Yeah, you've been through it, and I want to have family around." She has like 120 plus family members. Yeah, you can't go anywhere without seeing someone that's in her family, which is great. (laughs) And uh, and they're all really wonderful people. Um, But I thought, you know what? Let's let's go to Maine. Let's let's go have that support system. We want to have more kids. We want to have the ability to have people help us out when we need it. And I know what it's like living in North Carolina, and uh, not having that many. People that are family around to help out when when you really need you know a babysitter here or help doing sure. something there and um, and you know my my parents I love Michigan but you know Kelsey had been through the ringer and I thought let's go by her family
1: yeah. so
0: um, because of the heat of Texas and the way my body circulates uh, my blood and the re- you know releases heat from off the body and all that uh, 120 degrees did not sound like it was <laughs> something I wanted so we decided Maine and Maine's been great to us my mom and dad moved to Maine for he's uh, only going to come for a year. But they stayed for two, two years, and my mom stayed for another extra summer, and they ran the marina for me, so that was awesome. And they're both retired, so I have the freedom. They're coming up next month for like two months right. or something like that, or a month. So, you know, it's, it's and- really awesome.
1: We're going to take one last break and we'll talk to travis about what's coming next and some of the lessons he's learned we'll be right back mainers have an unrivaled work ethic an endless supply of ideas a boundless energy to create and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before which is why the maine technology institute was created to support nurture and invest in those qualities and make maine a place where ideas and people can thrive To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org.
0: Whatever happened to them, the worst is over. It's just time to keep going forward. Like, okay, it happened, right? We had to accept that it happened. And we gotta just push forward and not dwell on the fact that it did.
1: We're back with Travis Mills, learning about how the Travis Mills Foundation came about and learning about their support for veterans returning home from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So Travis, this experience changed your life and sent you down a path that you hadn't planned on. How do you encourage people to continue when change happens that throws them completely off path?
0: I mean, you know, we can't tell the future. So I just tell people like, we gotta take it as it comes. Uh, You know, I encourage them to live out my slogan or motto of never give up, never quit. And then to realize, you know, now that I would imagine whatever happened to them, the worst is over. It's just time to keep going forward. Like, okay, it happened. Right, we had to accept that it happened, and we got to push forward and not dwell on the fact that it did.
1: And has the foundation reached the goal of what you thought it could be, or do you have higher aspirations for it?
0: Oh, the foundation is way more than I ever thought it would be. I mean, we have just exceeded anything. I mean, care packages, right? Five thousand dollars donation from Kelsey and I—that's what we're doing. And now we're one of the top twenty-five, and we're proud of that fact. And we run it um, however we can stretch every dollar, but make everybody have the best uh, time ever and realize that life still goes on. So keep pushing forward. And uh, we're actually putting in a $7 million building because we want to be able to run 42 weeks out of the year. And this will give us the ability to do that.
1: You do a lot of speaking engagements. Is it important for you to get your story out there?
0: Well, I mean, I think people really are drawn to it. They now hire me a lot, like for um, resiliency training, which I guess I know a little bit about. And when I do go and I talk, it's a, a lot of jokes a lot of laughter a lot of like, you can still feel good. Like no yeah. matter what happens to you, you can still like get through it. And uh, and I truly enjoy it, you know, I'm so grateful and thankful for the opportunity.
1: For the Travis Mills Foundation, how can our listeners get involved if they want to become involved or donate to the foundation?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to let everybody know to go to travismillsfoundation.org and you can get involved in- A bunch of different ways you can donate you can encourage people to come to our events and be at our 5k and then lastly people can sign up to be volunteers and there's a ton of volunteer opportunities and we love anybody that wants to come and and be a part of it
1: the day that changed everything is a production of maine biz find out more about this podcast and other maine biz media products at mainebiz.biz the day that changed everything is sponsored by mti or maine technology institute Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. The Main Biz podcast team includes Donna Broussard, Allison Nason, Renee Cordes, Maureen Milliken, Will Hall, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. Subscribe at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Copyright 2021.